This is the Breakfast Leadership Podcast. Boundaries or burnout, you make the choice. Here's your host, Michael Levitt. Welcome back. I've got Dr. Indranil Ghosh on the line. How are you, doctor? I'm great. How are you doing, Michael? I am awesome. Thank you for being with us today. So tell us a little bit about your background because you've got a really interesting story and I think the audience is really going to resonate with what we're going to talk about today. Thanks, Michael. So I've always been a very keen scientist and uh, you know, technology enthusiast. So I began my career as a research scientist at MIT. I was working on various problems related to the chemical industry. Um, then after some years, I you know, joined McKinsey as a business consultant, worked in the tech and healthcare and private equity sectors. But I think my career took an interesting turn around the global financial crisis period when I joined Bridgewater, Ray Dalio's hedge fund up in Connecticut. And it was a great time to be in a global macro hedge fund because you know, the crisis was unfolding and it was an amazing way to study how this once in a lifetime event had come to be and what the aftermath would be. And it really got me thinking about long-term trends in the economy. Um, and that's the sort of a passion that I've pursued for the, for the last 10 or 12 years since then. Um, after Bridgewater, uh, I actually ended up in the Middle East um, as head of strategy and macroeconomics at a sovereign development fund called Mubadala. And um, this is a sovereign development fund of uh, Abu Dhabi, which is an emirate of the United Arab Emirates, which is a country that has come along in leaps and bounds over the last 20 or 30 years. Um, a lot of people know about Dubai, maybe have been there, but it's really astonishing how Dubai and Abu Dhabi have developed their economy in such a short period of time. And I was very fortunate to be able to be part of an organization whose mandate was actually to help with that diversification, to make investments that would diversify that economy away from oil and gas into lots of other sectors and build a whole load of social infrastructure which would help the, the population of that country um, uh, develop and be qualified for you know, uh, jobs of the future in sort of knowledge-based economies. Um, and ever since leaving Mubadala, uh, you know, about eight years ago, I've been working um, in my own uh, boutique investment advisory firm Tiger Hill Capital, working with governments and other sovereign wealth funds and sustainable investors on this idea of investing to develop economies and to build a sort of sustainable uh, economy in the future. Yeah, that petri dish of the economic uh, downturn back in 2008-2009 was really interesting. You know, I was on the the negative side of uh, that downturn in my own career back then, and ended up needing to relocate. Uh, I was working in Windsor, Ontario, just across the the border from Detroit, and of course, the auto sector in the United States and Canada definitely took a hit during that recession, and it forced me to go up to Toronto. And when you mentioned Dubai and basically divesting themselves from oil and gas and getting into many different industries, it's a good way to describe Toronto because when people ask me, and I've been up here for about a decade now, you know, what's Toronto's industry? And, and I look at them and I say, that's a very difficult question to answer because we really don't have one. There's a lot of things going on here. And that's why there were still jobs up here during the recession when in other areas of the country, 
there wasn't a lot of opportunity, but in Toronto, there was an absolute ton because they divested themselves from one particular bucket and it made such a big difference. And the you know, Dubai and the growth, you know, I'm, I'm aware of, you know, the rapid growth that those you know, nations and you know, countries have had over a very short period of time. And the thing of it is, I think more should be studied on what happened and how it happened. Because when any country across the planet is going through something like this, an economic downturn or whatnot, there's lessons to be learned of how that nation was able to really build up and grow and expand. Because if they can do it, any country can do it. They just have to do the right things. I think that's absolutely right, Mike. And I've spent a lot of time over the last decade, not just in Abu Dhabi, but with other clients thinking about this exact question, which is how do you transition an economy in a, in a city or even a rural area, small town, to be more resilient to what's going to happen in the future? I think this is a really a central question of the book. But actually, the book that I've written, which is Powering Prosperity, is, is about a broader transition that's happening in the global economy. Because I really believe, having looked at this for, for a decade or so, that we're at a crossroads in human history. The world is in transition, not just individual localities, but the world is in a transition to an aging, low-carbon, AI-augmented economy. And the world order, which has been you know, led by the U.S. and uh, supported by Western Europe for the last 20 or 30 years, is changing because... Now, India and China, particularly, are the rising superpowers. And in my book, you know, I try to make sense of this global trend, economic transition. And it's not clear whether it will lead to a good place or a bad place. The most important thing that I felt I could do was try to lay out for the reader how this transition might unfold and what we as citizens can do to shape a better future. Because we, we can't just leave it to the politicians or the you know, the, the, the trillionaires, each of us has something that we can do to play a role in crafting this future. And I think the reason why it's so important that we all take an informed, proactive role to this is that we can already see that the transition is unlikely to be very smooth. In a lot of countries, we're already seeing some serious divisions between workers and capital owners, between the old and the young, between the urban and the rural, between different ethnic groupings heating up. International tensions are rising as we move to this new world order. You know, the interests of China and the U.S., emerging economies and developed economies, liberal democracies and countries that are more uh, governed by state capitalism or even populism, they're all somewhat divergent. And the problem is, this isn't a new movie. Whenever we've seen this happen in the past, when inequality has been high, when growth is not raising all boats anymore, and when new superpowers are challenging the status quo, it's often led to revolutions and wars, and the risk for that is heightened. And for extra fun this time around, we also have the wild card in the pack, which is the unpredictable effects of climate change. So really, I take your point about the Toronto economy, and I say that you know we need to make economies at a very local level more resilient, but we need to think about what we can do to make this whole world economy more resilient and what role can we play, each of us, uh, to, to help in that regard. Well, it's crucial. And ever since the, you know, the advent of the internet, it's leveled the playing field quite a bit when it comes to access to products and services, because we can order anything from pretty much anywhere now and have it show up on our doorstep in a very short period of time. We can interact and have video calls and work with people 
from across the planet. I mean, you're in the UK right now. I'm in Toronto. And we're talking as if we're, you know, across the table from each other. And it, that technology is still you know, relatively new when it comes to the grand scheme of things. And the opportunities are there to really do things differently. But I agree with you. You made one point that I was definitely nodding my head up quite a bit is it's going to be a bumpy ride because we're going into roads that are not paved. They are new paths, new roads, so they're not nice and smooth. They're going to be bumpy. The direction that it takes is going to be really interesting because there's a lot of players in the mix that you know, want to make sure that they have their say in how it's going to look. And those players are typically the ones that have been calling the shots for a long time, and that may not be in the best interest in a global perspective and may be very isolated to North America, for example, or Europe, or you mentioned China and India. They're all huge players in this now. And it's even the playing field a little bit on that. So now the input and how they steer things has a global impact and not just a localized impact. So it's going to be really interesting to see how all this um, shapes up the global economic transition is ongoing and the time of this recording you know, we're dealing with the coronavirus situation which is having a really interesting impact on a variety of different sectors not just in manufacturing but even on the conference circuit there's a lot of huge conferences that generate millions of dollars that are being canceled because people are afraid of the spread of this virus. Yeah, we definitely live in a, a very interconnected world where the playing field is becoming more level. There's still a long way to go. What China does makes a big wave in the world. India will do as it gets to be a bigger economy will. And there, there are many other economies waiting in the wings that will go through that transition as well. I think the, the key thing for me is that Many of the sort of rules of thumb or assumptions that we've used in the past, many of us growing up in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s, we saw the world sort of operating in a certain way. Many of us have, have assumed, and myself included for, for, for some time, that those rules might extrapolate indefinitely into the future. But for me, during the global financial crisis, when I was at Bridgewater, I, I really began to rethink a lot of those assumptions. And I think it's key that we begin to realize that the assumptions by which the world worked back then in that era, and those assumptions have become beliefs and for some people have even become doctrines. I think these doctrines are in flux. Let me talk a about a few of them that I see changing quite dramatically. And some of the doctrines we used to cling to are things like a social contract where taxing a working age population that was engaged in free enterprise would then fund the economic security of the rest of the population by paying for social services and, and, and safety nets that many of us have become to treat as entitlements. You know, another doctrine was that technology would increase productivity, raise wages and solve societal problems, that globalization would bring prosperity to all corners of the world, that natural resources were abundant. After the, the fall of communism, you know, a lot of people thought capital, capitalism would, you know, continue to make every generation better off than the previous one, and that democracy would be adopted across the whole planet. I remember reading lots of articles about and books about these, these trends carrying on forever. Actually, what's turned out, especially since the global financial crisis, is a world that's changed uh, very much relative to those beliefs. 
In fact, most of the world other than Africa, India, and the Middle East right now is an aging world. And what that means is that we've got an increasingly small amount of the population that's working that needs to support the rest. And at a time when median wages are stagnating and the cost of basic services like housing, education, childcare, healthcare is increasing steeply, when pensions are underfunded and where people actually have very little savings, it's a time when economic security doesn't look very good for a lot of people. And governments don't really have a plan for funding this future liability, which is the aging population. It doesn't seem that you know, our old social contract where taxing a working age population would pay for everyone else's security is gonna exist in the future in the same way. And similarly, you know, technology, we're feeling very much the, um, the threat of intelligent machines automating ma manual and cognitive jobs going forward. So we need to think about creating new forms of work and retraining displaced workers to be able to do those new jobs. Like you said, we need to think about globalization in a new way and how do we now rejuvenate many of those economies that were deindustrialized because industries went to lower cost locations? How do we build those communities back up again? And climate change has become an existential threat. Natural resources clearly aren't abundant. They're, they're on a tight budget. And so we'll have to reprice things like carbon and water. You know, for the last 10 years, democracy has actually been in retreat under the threat from new authoritarian regimes and populism. So we really got to reflect, I think, on how things are turning on their head in this economic transition that we're in. 30 years from now, you know, what are we going to be facing in terms of an economy and how do we how do we try to make that as a positive a situation as possible? Yeah, there's so many things on there. There's so many moving parts with it and a couple that jump out at me. And it, it, one is the aging population. And in my previous career, I spent about a dozen years in healthcare and mostly in, in leadership roles in the primary care sector, but with hospitals as well. And in many areas, Toronto for one, and a lot of the United States, and this is probably globally too, the population over age 65 is going to double in about 15 years and the population over age 90 will triple. These are huge users of the system. They will need to rely on social services and health and a variety of other things because uh, the demand tends to increase as you get older. The governments and individuals don't have a plan for addressing those things. And I, I think the other thing too, and this was a study that I saw a couple of years ago, especially in North America, and it could be applicable to the world too, but especially in North America, where it's estimated that 25% of the jobs that exist today will no longer exist in 10 years. And it's not because of economic downturn. It's because AI is going to eliminate the need for those jobs. We're already seeing it in, in stores with self-checkout. You know, Amazon has their grocery store pilot where there are no cash registers and self-driving cars and, and all of these things are eventually going to be eliminating a lot of these jobs, but the population continues to grow. So we, we've got a, a bit of a shift here on how are we going to get paid and what kind of work is going to exist. So a, a dramatic need for retraining people because again, the population is such, there's going to be a lot of people, you know, the millennial age, Gen Z and you know, others that in you know, my generation and your generation, you know, we're still going to be plugging along in a decade, I think. There needs to be things for us to do. And unless we're going to a complete society where none of us work and we just get paid, 
from what I'm not sure, uh, there's going to be a huge, huge adjustment on things. And I think in, you know, one of the final points I want to ask you about is because of, you know, your, your organization, you know, you, you teach people and organizations on investments. Why is the way that we invest our, our time and our money going to be so important as we navigate through this transition? So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Well, I think you raised some really great examples there. So part of the answer to this is that if you look at over the last 30 years or so, if you look at the, the real cost of things like electronics, clothes, cars, a lot of manufactured goods, they've actually gone down and some of them have gone down quite steeply. So in that sense, we're better off because we can acquire those things you know, m- much more cheaply in inverted commas. But if you look at things like housing, healthcare, childcare, education, you know, things that are social services, you could call them, or elderly care as well. The, the cost of those things have risen dramatically. Four-year college in the United States, anyway, is about four times more expensive in real terms than it was in 1980. One of the things that is out there that we really need to address is bringing the costs of these social services down, making them a heck of a lot more efficient. At a very basic level, people have the ability, more ability to work because there's childcare services, so they're able to go to work. There's better and more effective education, so they're more qualified to go to work. The healthcare works better, has better outcomes, and is more affordable, so they're healthy enough to go to work. And there's enough transportation, so they're able to go to the job where the jobs are. So in a world where you have fewer working age people, you have to get the, the working age people you have to be as participative in the economy as possible. You have to empower uh, more women to go to work, more minorities, and eventually you've got to think about how do you get older people to continue working. So you've got to make more of the workforce that you have, and that starts by increasing people's ability to work. Now, where does investment come into this? I think in things like housing, education, lifelong learning, childcare, there's so much opportunity for new business models to come in and actually deliver equal or better results at a lower cost. Whether that's then partly funded by government and partly by the private sector is a choice that you know, different societies make. But funding the investment that is required to get those business models off the ground and scale, which can bring the costs down of social services, is a great investing opportunity. And it's a great opportunity for entrepreneurs and something that we already see many companies trying to take advantage of. To your question about, you know, will there be enough work for us to do? I think the bigger question is, will we have workers qualified to do the, the new jobs that there are? I actually think that if we're in innovative societies, there will always be lots of new forms of work because we are very creative as humans of thinking of things that we want to do and spend our time on. I just use the ex- example of sports and entertainment to think about this. If you think back to sort of 1900, you know, what was the professional sports industry like? And what, was the enter- what did the entertainment industry consist of? I don't think there really was any professional sports. It was really mainly amateur sports, people playing in leagues, and some people going to watch the, the teams that were a bit better than the sort of average Sunday league teams. You know, entertainment was theater and maybe sort of black and white movies had just started. There's a very small industry. And now you look at the sports and entertainment industry today with music, television, streaming, movies and and sports entertainment not to mention the merchandising around it there's so many professional athletes so many 
people engaged in training those athletes in the whole sports and entertainment industry. It just gives you a sense that over time, how something can be, not, something that's not even considered to be paid work can become multi-billion, multi-trillion dollar industries. So in that sense, I'm not worried, but as you know, we move forward, are we gonna have people who have maybe been displaced from a job in a restaurant or as a you know, transportation worker who are then qualified to take on those new jobs in the future. I think that's, again, an area of enormous opportunity for uh, investment, both public and private. And then when we extend this idea to, to transitioning to the, a low-carbon economy, when we have to get our energy from renewable sources, our transportation will be electric vehicles, maybe our food will be drawn, uh, grown in big indoor greenhouses. Again, you just see there's so much opportunity for investment to sort of shape the way that our economy unfolds. There's so many opportunities. And I think what happens is us as a human race forget that if we rewind 100 years ago, what industries were existing and which ones are still around and the ones that we're doing now that didn't even exist, say, 20 years ago, we have the ability to learn. That's, that's our nature. We're able to pick up new skills and, and be creative. And you know, I, I see it time and time again with people that have reinvented themselves. I mean, my, my own personal story, I, you know, I started off in accounting and went into IT and went into healthcare executive, launched businesses, host a podcast show. All of these things were skills that I did not have 30 years ago, but I do now. And I, I can continue to learn. And that's the one takeaway, I think, for everybody to think about is be open, be creative, and, and continue to, to learn the things that we need to learn. And we'll all together navigate through these bumpy roads that we may be facing, but we know that the outcome of it's going to be absolutely incredible adventure for all of us. I think you're so right about that. And I couldn't agree with you more. In fact, going back to the point about technology, technology always has a plus side and a minus side. Yes, on the minus side, it's going to give us a problem in terms of how to retrain and redeploy all these workers that might be um, displaced from jobs that they've had for, 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 for many years. The technology also allows us to do all these things that were not possible before. You've mentioned some of them. For example, when we have something like an Uber or an Airbnb, we can do things with transportation and you know sharing our you know, real estate assets that we couldn't do before and there's there are going to be new businesses that are going to be built on that on those platforms we see some of that already actually so uber is a good way for us not to own a car share a roving set of vehicles that are already out there if you think about what services you can build on top of that well you can create specialized services where you take elderly or uh, infirmed people to their medical appointments in specially fitted cars with, with trained drivers. And indeed, Uber has launched a service called Uber Health that just does that. And perhaps we can think of businesses in the future where based on that transportation platform, there'll be services that take our kids to Little League or organize custom-made you know, tours of the city for us. So there's so much room for innovation based on you know, new platforms that are emerging every day. I, th I think the whole point of the book is I believe that there is a path to a much more prosperous future. But it's one where we're very much aware of the challenges and how the economy is changing and how we as citizens can invest our capital better into the kinds of businesses and projects that will shape a better future. But also 
it can inform us on how to vote in a different way, how to purchase the right sort of products that have been produced ethically, how we you know, raise our kids so that they're more prepared for the future workplace, how we run our companies and treat our employees and customers. There's so many things that we can do in a more constructive way that get us to that more you know, prosperous path. And that's really what I wanted to lay out in, in the book that I've written and make part of my investment practices. I'm thrilled that you took the time and gave of your time so much to create this book to give us the roadmap of how we should approach things uh, going forward. So I've enjoyed our conversation today. Where can people find out more about you, this book, and all this awesome work that you're doing? Well, the, the book has a website. It's www.powering-prosperity.com. You can find out more about the book and, and me there. And you can also find me on LinkedIn and Twitter. And I'll have all that information in the show notes. So thank you so much again for your time today and, and for this awesome work and bringing awareness to all of these opportunities that we have before us. Thank you for having me on the show. Hey, it's Michael again. Thank you for listening to the podcast. I really appreciate it. If you're like many people, you're dealing with some significant stress and possibly approaching burnout. I know how you feel. In 2009, my burnout led to a year of worst case scenarios. I do not want that to happen to you. If you go to breakfastleadership.com, you can register for a free webinar on burnout prevention, as well as get as a free checklist to have successful mornings. Start off each day the right way. Again, that's at breakfastleadership.com. Also, since you are a loyal podcast listener, I'm asking you to like, rate, and review my podcast on iTunes. I look at all the reviews and appreciate your comments, and it helps other potential listeners discover the content I have on the show. I appreciate you, and thanks again for listening.